We were just talking about what is happening as far as more enforcement, the state of emergency declared in Ontario because of the ongoing blockades. We've also seen some businesses impacted here, uh, specifically businesses near the Pacific Highway border crossing and businesses that rely on certain goods. Let's bring in Anita Huberman, the CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade, to talk a bit more about this. Thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. I know that you have also put out a letter or or put out uh, asking businesses to watch out for these disruptions that are caused by protests. How big of an impact is this having on Surrey businesses? Well, certainly not as much as what's happening in Ottawa or in Ontario or in Alberta. But we are hearing that uh, that is expected to change this weekend in Surrey, where a border city... And uh, we're hearing uh, that they're starting to camp out. They're affecting businesses. They're honking horns. Uh, they're swearing at people that are wearing masks. Uh, really affecting businesses uh, and uh, and workers, especially in the the southern part uh, of our city. And how concerned are you about that behavior? The swearing at people, that particularly that are wearing masks, uh, and that kind of behavior. That's unacceptable. And what they're doing right now, and if this continues to grow uh, over the weekend all across Canada, is they're sabotaging the economy. They're impacting livelihoods, uh, businesses and jobs and supply chains. It, It really is unacceptable. And when you talk about, I guess, two two things there, the, the physical presence in some cases, and we've heard from some of those businesses that are impacted, particularly around that area, around the border. So there's the physical presence and, and the intimidation. But you also mentioned supply chain and the disruption in that. How big of an impact is that having, or sorry, having, if we're talking about that? I, I mean, I know we're, when we look at other provinces in Ontario, uh, there are job losses. I mean, there are people that hour, hours are being restricted because there's simply nothing moving back and forth. But are you also seeing impacts like that or or similar to that here? Absolutely. Surrey has the greatest number of manufacturers in British Columbia. So they ship across the nation. Uh, Sometimes they ship into Alberta and then they have to cross the border uh, into the United States. The impact of these blockades uh, is choking already impacted supply chains. Businesses and jobs that have been impacted uh, as a result of the pandemic, labor shortages, uh, you know, really, it, it is these demonstrations, everyone has a right to peacefully protest, uh, but these types of demonstrations are impacting the economy. Uh, I know that uh, you have penned a, a letter and this letter asking for the Prime Minister and for other leaders to make sure that the rule of law will be upheld. Uh, we did just hear from the Prime Minister. He was asked about bringing in the military. He did say it's a consideration that a decision hasn't been made. Do you think enough is being done as far as keeping citizens and keeping businesses safe? Well, number one, there's a, a whole group of Chambers of Commerce, Boards of Trades, led by our head office, the Canadian Chamber of Commerce in Ottawa, uh, that is asking for more action by the federal government because businesses have been held hostage in some parts of the nation. Um, I think more can be done. Uh, we need to enact measures to protect our critical infrastructure Uh, There needs to be injunctive measures through the courts to assert a clear message that lawlessness will not be tolerated. Yes, everyone has a right to protest, 
But what we're seeing is lawlessness. We need to ensure that law enforcement agencies have the necessary political support and appropriate tools. Uh, So local government, for example, needs to work uh, with our policing partners to ensure that there's public order. And how concerned are you? Here we are. It's another Friday afternoon. We tend to see these types of protests get bigger on Saturdays. And and like you said, of course, everybody has the right to peacefully protest. But are you concerned that it is going to be something that happens again tomorrow, given what you've already seen and, and what we've heard from some of those businesses in Surrey that have been that have noticed people being yelled at for wearing masks and, and that disruption to their businesses? Well, we're hearing about a trucker convoy that is starting in Chilliwack and then ending uh, in Surrey at the border, uh, at the Pacific border crossing. Um, I I think it's going to grow and escalate uh, this weekend. It hasn't been uh, as severe as it was for the past two weekends in Vancouver on Highway 1 from Langley all the way into downtown Vancouver. I think we're going to experience it in Syria, and that's why we sent a message to our members saying, take the precautions to safeguard the exterior of your business, your staff, listen to media to see which are the affected areas, keep up to date on the situation that may progress over the weekend. And have you had any response from businesses with their concerns or response to, to even that direction? Well, yes. I mean, specifically one, um, uh, it's a child care center, a member of the Surrey Board of Trade already impacted by uh, those that are rolling in uh, to the southern part of Surrey uh, where they're um, abusing their staff. Uh, They're having loud parties after three o'clock and uh, just really uh, impacting the flow of clients in and out of their, their daycare center, for example. So it's starting, not as bad as it is in Ottawa, where it's shut down businesses, uh, but um, we're observing it very closely uh, tomorrow. All right. Anita Huberman, thanks so much for taking the time and for joining us today. Thank you. You take care. Well, my next guest is a treasure hunter. He has found thousands of lost pieces of jewelry and other treasures over the years. And now one find, well, he needs a little help finding the owner in hopes of having another reuniting of a piece of jewelry with its owner. Chris Turner is on the line with us now. Hey, Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Joe. Thanks for having me. Uh, people would probably know you. Uh, we know that you uh, are with the ringfinders.com and uh, people might remember when you were instrumental in finding actor John Cryer's wedding ring in Vancouver. But this one has a bit more of, well, it's a bit more of a puzzle. So tell us what you found. Well, to most people, you'd think it's just a plain gold band and to me, I guess I look at uh, rings differently than most people, Joe. I, I look at it as a story, and this story ended years ago. And, you know, my friend Jerry and I hunted uh, the beaches in White Rock, hunted meaning metal detected, and a lady came up to my friend and said, I lost my ring here. Um, if you find it, please, 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 could you let me know? And she left him a number. And every time I go back to that beach, my friend Jerry and I would always say, don't forget there's a ring out here. Because it's funny, the oceans only give you what it wants when it wants to. And flashback four days ago, I found a plain gold band with an inscription, which she 
described. It sounded like what she described. And the first thing I thought about was this lady and trying to get it back to her, but we couldn't find her number. Right. So, sorry, how long ago was it that the woman approached you on the beach? That's what we're trying to figure out. We, we're not sure. It's it, between maybe five and eight years ago. Okay. And gave and, you her uh, contact number, but, you know, over time, things things get lost, things as get, you know. Yeah, they get lost <laughs> and forgotten. But, uh, you know, we, I never forgot it. When I found that, the first thing I thought about, this could be this lady's ring. And it's a plain gold band with uh, a, a day, month, and year she was married, and the year was 1957. And um, I, I just would love to, to get it back to her. I think it would be amazing to be able to reunite her with that ring and hear the story. Oh, yeah. Do you know if, um, if she was a local resident or anything else about her? I believe she was a local resident of White Rock because she used to walk the beach a lot. Because when she had told my friend about it, I think it was a year or so later, she bumped into me and told me the same story. So I knew right away who she was. And I told her, yes, absolutely, I'll keep an eye out for it. And... Um, Like I say, these things, you just never know if somebody else beat you to it. But the ocean has a way of tucking away the gold and then just giving me little bits here and there. And it gave it to me the other day when I was out there just searching for fun. And uh, again, the first thing I thought about was this lady. Hmm. What was your reaction? I mean, like you say, the first thing you thought about was her, but also the fact that this particular person stuck with you and that kind of always keeping an eye out for that exact ring it must have been or what was your response when you when you saw it and thought oh this is the this is the one from years ago well actually i got to put my glasses on to actually see what's inside of it so when i got home i saw the date and i phoned my friend i said jerry jerry i go this could be that ring do you remember and he's like yeah i do i, I recollect her talking to me and we were going back and forth trying to figure it out and i said didn't she give you a number and he goes yeah but he couldn't find it and again it could be up to eight years ago but I I never forget when people tell me where they've lost stuff. And, you know, I I like to try to think I could find it. Sometimes you can't. And other times you might get lucky years later. So I just just would be thrilled to see if we can get this back and just hear the story behind the ring. And how amazing, too, that you found it. I mean, I know that you do this and you're out there quite often, but I've also seen more and more people doing this. I think even during the pandemic, it's not rare to go out and see people with metal detectors and going over combing over the sands of beaches so how uh, i guess serendipitous that you were the one that found it well i'm hoping joe i'm hoping it's the one i mean it's got an inscription it was a plain gold band everything that she described so i'm hoping this is hers um serendipitous absolutely you never know what you're going to get i've gone out to that beach Oh, my God, so many times over the last eight years, and it, it took this particular time to go over it. But we need a lot of help. We need the currents. We need the ocean, the tides, the moon, the, the winds and storms to cut up that beach to where we can get down to it. Because a lot of times you come home with ball caps, pole tabs, uh, nails, you name it. You don't always come home with treasures. So, yeah, it just stuck in my mind. And the first thing I thought about was her and I just hope she's listening. I hope somebody who knows her might hear this and know the story because I guarantee you when you lose something that is valuable, you talk about it and you tell your friends and you're heartbroken. I see it. I've returned literally hundreds of rings, not thousands. My directory, the ring finders, we returned over 9,000 rings as a directory. I personally have returned over 600 here in Vancouver, 300 and I think 40 on my directory. And before the directory was created, I was doing this as well. Wow. And what's it like when you reunite somebody with their ring? And I would imagine in most cases, they thought it was gone forever. It is 
I, I played professional soccer. I played for Canada. My first acting part was with Johnny Depp. The best thing I've ever done in my life is what I'm doing now. It's helping people. It's seeing how it affects their life. And I, I am addicted to helping people. I absolutely love it. It's the best feeling in the world to be able to hold this ring up and show that person and see how it affects them. And I've got a YouTube channel, same as my business, The Ring Finders. And to see the smiles, uh, I organically will show these people without them knowing it. And you can see what it means to them. It's the best job I've ever had in my life. And when I, when I say job, I, I personally created a footprint and all my members use it. And I work on a reward basis. I leave it up to people to pay what they can afford, what it's worth to them. And all I ask for is cover my gas if I don't find it. So um, I, I just love what I do. There's nothing in the world better than what I do. And that's just making people happy. I, I love it. Yeah, and that's a, a pretty reasonable price. I think anybody would agree with that as well, because I'm imagining some people would and, and, and could if they wanted to uh, take it upon themselves to go with metal detectors and just take whatever they find and, and sell it. And that's, that's everybody, everybody's different. I, I found, I found, like I say, I look at rings differently. Now I look at every ring as being a story that has ended. And I personally love continuing those stories. And you're right, Joe, people can take and sell and scrap their gold. Some people do. Uh, that's their choice. I've chosen to uh, try to find the owner and try to continue that story. And it's made me so happy in my life to be able to do this. Uh, we've talked a lot about rings, and we'll, we'll we'll give as much information more again about this ring in particular. But what's the kind of craziest thing you've ever found, or the most surprising thing you've ever found? Wow, what a great question! I, I found an urn full of sugar hmm. uh, buried about a foot and a half down at Spirit Park, which was just bizarre. Are you sure it was um, sugar? Well, my friend put his finger in and tasted it. <laughs> oh. I wasn't going to do it, but he's like, what is that? It looks like, and he tastes it's sugar. So I don't know what that was about. Hmm. I found a, a tin can with a ponytail in it at Stanley Park. I just buried it back in. I just had no idea what that was about. So those are kind of the weirdest things um, that I can recall. Uh, you know, I, I've been called to find people's ashes and remains that are in, in properties where I can get it back to them because they're moving. They want to take their family with them. Um, they, those are some unusual ones. Those are I, unusual. I, what about the most uh, valuable thing, uh, money-wise, that you've ever found? Oh, my wife, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, the most, you know what? I I don't look at anything as the value of it. I I look at the story. So I've been, I guess, I I found a sixty-eight thousand dollar ring for a lady that had dropped it off a balcony, and um, that's probably one of the most expensive rings I found, but. To me, it's it's not the value because the value is a sentimental value. I, I had a guy from France call me to look for a a ring in Yoho National Park. He he wanted to pay me four hundred dollars to go and a thousand to find it. And right away, I said, "Okay, I got to hear the story. Who pays fourteen hundred dollars to find a silver wedding band?" And he said, "Look, he goes, my my girlfriend at the time and I were traveling across Europe. We we're madly in love. All we could afford was a silver wedding band." And we got, we had a secret marriage. Our family didn't know about it. Two years later, we got married for the family. He goes, I could buy a million of those. I want that one. Hmm. So this goes back about five, six years now. I have a diver going in every year for two days looking for that ring because we know how important it is. Now it's, it's gone beyond the value of what the reward is, but we just want to find it and continue that story and be able to give it back to him. So we know we'll find it one day. It's just, it's a big area. 
All right. Just before I let you go, so we're saying it's an, a gold band with the year 1957. It's got the date, but we're not going to give that out because we want to make sure it goes to the right person. How can people contact you if they know anything about this ring? Uh, TheRingFinders.com. That's the, www.TheRingFinders.com. Just click on Vancouver. It'll take you to my profile page and my number's there. All right. Well, I have my fingers crossed. I really hope somebody uh, hears this and that uh, there is that reunion made. Chris, we will leave it there, and I'm hoping for a very happy update. Thank you so much, Joe. Thanks for the interest. Thank you uh, to your listeners at CKNW. I appreciate you. All right. That is Chris Turner. He's a treasure hunter. Again, theringfinders.com. And if you happen to know anybody who lost their 1957 ring, you could help reunite them because Chris likely found it. Thank you so much for being with us today. I want to do something a little bit different now and for the next few moments, paying tribute to somebody who, while never an employee of this radio station, is certainly someone who has made a mark on it. As you know, The form here at CKNW is for a lot of open line radio. We like to open up the phone lines and see what people are talking about and how people are feeling. Not quite as much as we used to. If you've been a longtime listener, you probably remember at times Bill Good opening up the phone lines on any topic. That was something we used to do quite often. And if you've been listening for any length of time as well, you've probably heard a comment or two from somebody named Dave. Dave has been calling the open lines here at CKNW for decades, so much so that we sometimes affectionately refer to Dave as Motormouth Dave. Because if you've heard Dave call, then you also know Dave has a lot of opinions. And sometimes he will get on a roll and he'll let them out one after another, sometimes changing topics mid-sentence, never missing a beat, not taking a breath. Several years ago, when I was hosting the morning news on Saturdays and Sundays, I started doing an open line segment on Sunday mornings. Just one segment, but being that it was pretty early on a Sunday, there wouldn't always be a lot of callers. But Dave would call. And I'm not sure if at the time Dave knew this, although I'm guessing maybe he did. I would often, in that Sunday morning segment, let him go on and on and roll with those opinions. I wouldn't stop him. Mainly because there was nobody else on the line calling in. I would let Dave go and go on this tangent and this tangent, but there always did come a point where I would have to jump in and say, Dave, take a breath. And he would, and we would have a little chuckle, and we would move on until the next time Dave called. Well, by now you've probably figured out that there is a reason why I am reminiscing and talking about this today. Earlier this week, I received an email from a good friend of Dave's, a close friend, saying that Dave had sadly passed away suddenly and unexpectedly last weekend. The email reminded me that not only had Dave been calling this radio station for decades, he'd also been mentioned in one of Rafe Mayer's books. So I thought, who else will remember Dave? Gord McDonald's. I can't remember the year, Jill, when I first met Dave on the phone. I think it was about two in the morning, though. You see, Jill, Dave had this need to call. So when the talk shows were all done for the day, he'd call the newsroom. He and I would often chat. He had an opinion about everything. But two things always stood out to me as I recall those conversations. At times, Dave would be frustrated with the politicians, aren't we all? But he never was angry. He never called up to scream vitriol or obscenities 
as is so often the case these days with frustrated people. And Dave was always respectful, Jill, of the work you and I do. Lord knows I've made more mistakes than I can count. Dave would sometimes lightheartedly correct me, but never with malice, and he never embarrassed me. I appreciated that then, and I do today. Rest in peace, Dave, and thank you for listening all these years. Dave will also be remembered by many people in the sports radio world. He was a huge sports fan. He also made an impact on many people who, shall we say, have entered broadcasting more recently. People like CKNW producer Ben Dooley. I first crossed paths with Dave as an intern at TSN 1040. Dave was a regular caller to the station and was lovingly known as Maple Leaf Dave by hosts and listeners alike because of his fandom for the Toronto Maple Leafs. As an intern, I was getting my first on-air experience, and whenever Dave called, he made sure to let me know he was enjoying hearing my voice and opinions. Over the next few years, I'd learned just how special that approval was, because when Dave didn't like something, he had no problem letting you know about it. It's often said radio has a special impact on its listeners, but I think the impact listeners like Dave have on the people who work in radio is pretty special too. Rest in peace, Dave. And one final note about Dave. I only met him in person once. I was at a gas station on the Lowheat Highway doing live hits into the Global Morning News about gas prices. We were on a quick break, so we popped across the street to grab a coffee. And while we were standing in the line, I heard a voice behind me say my name. Now, that can be a bit jarring. It can also be a little bit scary, but not in this case, because I heard that voice and I turned around and said, I know that voice. It's you, Dave. And there was Dave standing behind us. He'd seen us on TV and he came down to see if he could buy us a coffee. We chatted a few minutes. We had a few laughs. And that was that. Well, thank you, Dave. Thank you for being a decades-long listener, somebody with so many opinions, but no malice, never rude, never mean, and for all of those calls. We will miss you. Well, I first met my next guest back in 2016. She was preparing for the Mongol Derby, which is one of the most grueling horse races there is. Well, she is now preparing for another big challenge and joins me on the line to talk more about this. Heidi Telstad, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me by to talk. Uh, I can't believe it's been this long since uh, the Mongol Derby that you took part in. We'll get into what you're doing again in just a couple moments, but remind people, what exactly did you do in Mongolia and how did you get involved in that? Oh my gosh, that was the most (laughs) amazing adventure I've ever had in my life. Um, It it was going to Mongolia and we were racing 1,000 kilometers across the wild steps on semi-feral horses which uh, really like to buck um, westerners off because we all smell different and our Gore-Tex makes a lot of noise so it was really exciting Um, I rode 29 different horses and um, I had a partner with me from Australia and uh, we rode really hard and we ended up winning the race and um, there was a lot of dangers and wild dogs chasing us and uh, losing tack or stirrups and that kind of thing. So it was very intense, and uh, I lost 18 pounds because you get so excited you can't eat and you're stressed out. But um, I still think about it almost every day, and I'm happy to do talks 
and uh, tell everybody about my most amazing vacation. <laughs> yeah. So and so that race, the the 2016 Derby, Derby, which was a thousand kilometers. How long did that take you? Um, it took the winners um, seven and a half days, um, but the majority of people took 10 days to finish. And we would start riding at daybreak at dawn and we would ride until just before uh, dusk. And um, so we some days we rode um, 120 kilometers. Or more? Oh no, sorry, 160 kilometers or more. Wow, and and like you said, one of the most grueling and frightening at times and and challenges of your life. But you are now preparing for another big challenge, even more so. One of 16 people chosen to participate in another charity horseback expedition. First of all, how did you become one of 16 people to be chosen for this? Um, it's interesting because the organizer, um, Julie Valou, she's actually um, a Canadian as well, but she has moved to Mongolia full time. She had visited Mongolia about 10 years ago. And uh, when she was getting a, a tour around the country, um, they ended up going past uh, one of the biggest garbage dumps in the middle of winter. And winter's really cold in Mongolia. You get down to minus 50. And she could see all these um, little Mongolian children scavenging in the garbage dump. And um, as a Canadian or, or anybody, um, it really touched her heart. And she, she decided she needed to do something about it. So she started uh, the Children's Peak Sanctuary. And in order to raise funds for this, raise funds for this charity, uh, she started doing uh, horse treks on Mongolian horses. And it's just gotten really popular, and she does about uh, 10 rides a year. And all of the riders um, across the world try and raise money for the sanctuary. And um, it's through the Canadian charity, so it makes it nice that we can all get our tax receipts here in Canada. Um, And then Julie and I have been in touch ever since I did the Mongol Derby. And she thought, wouldn't it be fun for me to ride horses that are a little bit more well-trained, but still having the ability to take my time and to be able to visit all these amazing um, spots across Mongolia and then having the chance to actually meet the children that we're um, raising funds for, for their school and visit the school. Um, so it's, it's just been a bit of a whirlwind ever since doing that 2016 race and now being able to be part of the charity um, with Julie Ballou. It's um, kind of the best of all worlds for everybody. And, and so this is called the um, the Blue Wolf Totem Expedition. And l- like you were saying, so the, the past derby you did was seven and a half days. But am I right in saying this is an 84-day charity horseback ride? Yes. Um, so that gives us time. Um, we'll, we'll still be riding the horse's fairly quick so we can get to our location but we're going to take a little bit more time and um, highlight and discover some of the really neat places across Mongolia. Um, Julie Valu is actually writing a book about our experience um, so we'll be able to update people as we go along and then she'll be able to introduce all these new spots to new riders or people who want to read her book when she finally gets it um, published. So 3,600 kilometers over three months, and we'll be camping. So we're not going to be going into any hotels or anything like that. 
Um, so we're going to be roughing it. Um, although uh, we will have a chef, thank goodness, because I'm not a good cook, um, that will help uh, <laughs> feed us during the ride. So that's probably our biggest luxury. Otherwise, yeah, three months um, out on the Mongolian steppe and the winters are cold and sometimes summers get hot. <laughs> yeah. Our, our days get hot. <laughs> yeah. Um, you, and you have to raise a fair amount of money, not only for the entrance fee and to take part in this, but I know you're also raising money for the charity. So can you talk a little bit about what you're doing as far as the fundraising? Sure. Um, I have to raise uh, 4000 uh, directly for the charity, but that's 4000 U.S. dollars, which I always got to remind myself is a little bit more than Canadian dollars. And I've been doing well so far. Um, which uh, the money can be donated directly to my portal or um, through my fundraising efforts, which has been selling um, pure yak socks that I get delivered monthly from directly from Mongolia. And they're through Julie's um, sewing center. Um, so the money, it goes right back to um, the Mongolian workers, as well as the money going to the children of the Peak Sanctuary. And I would have never thought that I could sell so many socks, but people have been loving these socks, especially since we've had a bit of a cold winter here in Vancouver with lots of snow. So they've been popular and um, selling thigh-high socks and uh, knee-high and crew socks, all different kinds, uh, with yak wool, which is actually warmer than sheep's wool, and just as soft. And, um, yeah, I'm trying to think of other fundraising ideas. Um, Some people have just been donating directly. Um, I'm thinking about having a beer and burger um, event closer to the day that I leave. Um, I leave April 26th, so April's going to be the last push for fundraising. Continuing now, my guest is Heidi Telstad. She took part in the Mongol Derby in 2016. She is now getting ready to take part in an 84-day charity horseback expedition called the Blue Wolf Totem Expedition. And Heidi, before the break, we were talking about the entrance fees, the fundraising, getting ready for this. This is coming up pretty soon, though, in May. Uh, What are your thoughts with it being so close? Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah, just counting down the days now, it really seems real because I think last year being in, in uh, lockdown and, and the ride was cancelled because it was supposed to be happening last year. But then with all the COVID restrictions, we cancelled it and, and, and your spirit kind of falls because you're like, oh, I don't want to get too excited, excited that it's going to go ahead today or this year. Um, but it looks like restrictions are being eased and we're actually going to be able to all fly out and... Uh, finally get out of lockdown and enjoy life once again. Yeah. Um, Can you talk a bit about the horses and what it's like? Because I know we talked about this when you were doing the other derby and and (laughs) people had a lot of questions about, well, where do the horses come from and how are they uh, looked after on the route and and that kind of thing. So what's it going to be like uh, during this race? Oh, it's going to be much different because Part of the Mongol Derby was the excitement of getting horses that weren't trained yet. And uh, Mongolia has way more horses uh, in the country than they do people. So um, a lot of the, the herders that are out there, they have um, about 100 horses minimum each, it seems. And they all gather together and bring their horses together uh, for the Mongol Derby. So for this uh, particular ride, the Blue Wolf Totem, it's through... Um, a different organization through Horse Trek Mongolia, which is situated um, in Mongolia, 
as well as with Julie Valu, and she just started riding horses when she moved to Mongolia. So she understood the need to have horses that were um, trained for Western riders that were used to the way we smell and look and ride, which is with longer stirrups. Um, and then also making sure the horses were well fed. So part of our entry fee goes to feeding the horses over um, the cold Mongolian winters, um, rather than just letting it be left to survival of the fittest, where they're trying to gather their own food, like um, like uh, mustangs do out here out west. So the horses are fed, they're trained, and Julie and uh, her team they ride the horses throughout the winter to make sure they're in good condition for when we get there to do our 3,600 kilometer ride. So I'm not as worried about um, being seriously injured on this ride um, because the horses will be safer and we'll have uh, um, saddles that the horses are used to for us. Right. So that's exciting. (laughs) Yeah. And have you always been a, a lover of horses or involved with horses? Um, I have. Um, my mom, she had horses from when I was uh, just a little girl. And so I started off with a little Shetland pony. And then my very first real horse was um, an Arabian. Um, and uh, and he wasn't very well trained. So I'm used to these um, wild horses or Mustangs. And that was where um, she's like, if you want to learn how to ride. And I don't know if she was encouraging me or just seeing if she could scale me back so I didn't get too crazy. Um, so, yeah, riding my first Arabian. I also got my first concussion, my first dislocated shoulder. And uh, back then we didn't wear helmets. So, um, yeah, I've always had this love for horses and just this ability to be able to read their personalities really quick. And having that close connection um, just seems to be, I don't know, um, almost like a mental health escape, Uh, just being able to connect and be within um, the present. And, uh, And so I think that's why I've stayed with horses. I was out for about 20 years during university as uh, we all try to get our education. But now coming back to horses, uh, I've realized how important it is to be able to have that um, living in the moment feeling. Yeah. So, So looking ahead to this adventure, what are you most excited about and what are you most scared about? I'm most excited to see all of Mongolia and so that I'm not racing through it where it's a blur. Um, I actually started taking a whole bunch of courses um, so I could be helpful for the horses. I took equine massage um, so I can take uh, good care of um, my horses as well as equine chiropractic and um, I've taken some Reiki training so I'm excited to help other riders. Um, as well as help all the horses there. Um, and then what am I most scared of? <laughs> I'm most scared that I'm not going to be able to pay off my um, credit cards to pay for the entry fee. Um, yeah, and, and just being sure I can be healthy for the ride, I guess, because uh, there's always that change in food difference. Um, but I do feel safe with these horses, and because it is a larger group and I'm not riding on my own, um, so I do have that safety factor. So, yeah, I guess just raising the funds is probably the scariest thing. <laughs> All right. Well, where can people go uh, to learn more then about the yak socks that you're selling and even to learn more about uh, Blue Wolf Totem and the, the expedition itself? Um, okay. So probably the easiest 
to find me on Facebook and just search my name, Heidi Telstead. Um, and that's where I'm selling the Yak Boxes through Facebook. And then for uh, the Blue Wolf Totem Ride um, is to go through, do a Google search on the ValuFoundation.com. And then there you'll be able to find out not only about the Blue Wolf Totem Ride, but if uh, people want to participate next year, they can find out about um, uh, the Gobi Gallop, which are other rides that have been going on for the last 10 years. Or um, the other exciting part is um, I'm going to do my own ride that I'm going to leave, and it's going to be based on this ride I'm doing this year, but it's going to be much much shorter, uh, less expensive, and it's called the Blue Wolf Totem Experience. So it's going to be an annual trip that I take every year to Mongolia, and then I introduce um, everyone else who's excited to learn about Mongolia and uh, fundraise, and I kind of want to do all the highlights. So if people get excited following my ride this year, then um, I can introduce them to all the highlights next year, which includes um, being able to ride with the eagle hunters and uh, being able to hunt an eagle yourself, um, as well as going to uh, the Buddhist temples and getting blessings and uh, also visiting the school. So, yeah, so there's just so much going on. Um, It's really exciting to kind of open up the world to Mongolia, as well as being able to give them Uh, the supports that we just take for granted here in uh, Canada. All right. Well, I look forward to uh, getting closer to this great adventure and to talking to you about it afterwards. But we'll leave it there. Heidi, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, it It was fun to talk about it. Well, as you've been hearing in the news, a part of an elementary school, an area by a school, was roped off on Thursday afternoon after one of the students there found a gun on the school grounds. When the discovery was made, the students were brought inside Bothwell Elementary. This was confirmed by RCMP. No one was injured. But joining us to talk a bit more about this is Constable Sarbjeet Sangha, a media relations officer with the Surrey RCMP. Thanks so much for being with us. Uh, Thank you for having me, Joe. That's a a pretty disturbing uh, fact that a student found a firearm on the school grounds. What can you tell us about that? So uh, I definitely agree with you. It is very concerning, not as just a police officer, as a parent who has kids in schools. It's uh, very concerning for a child to find uh, a weapon of this sort. So we had uh, on yesterday, uh, we got a call from the school regarding the discovery of this firearm on school grounds. Our officer attended the scene and seized this weapon. Uh, we did a further article search in the area to make sure there wasn't anything else uh, surrounding the area. Uh, since then, we have been, uh, you know, uh, working alongside with IHIT as they had another investigation uh, in the area. Uh, on Tuesday evening, there was a shooting that had taken place uh, closer to the school. So um, we are in uh, early stages of investigating this firearm incident. Uh, we are not able to uh, determine at this point as to if it's related to any um, recent shootings, but we will be sending the firearm to the lab to analyze it to find out if it's uh, connected to any recent shootings. Right. So with the shooting on February 8th, where one person was killed uh, and another person was injured, uh, we don't know at this point if that shooting is in any way linked to the firearm that was found on the school grounds? 
That is correct, uh, because this needs to be analyzed in the lab, whether this weapon is actually functional. And uh, obviously for the DNA and to do the blood work to see if it's connected to that shooting or any other shooting that may have occurred. Do you know if the firearm was loaded when the student found it? I do not have uh, that uh, knowledge if it was loaded or not. Okay, and when you say that it, there needs to be the determination it was if it was functional, so do you know then if this is an actual firearm or a replica firearm? I can definitely confirm that it is uh, an actual firearm, not a replica firearm, but on the capacity when we're talking about whether it's a functional or not, that is something that is determined uh, by a technician who is an expert on firearms. Okay, can you say what kind of firearm it is? Uh, I do not have the make and model of this pharma, but I believe it's a small handgun. Okay. I understand that uh, following these two incidents, that there is going to be some more community outreach as far as uh, reaching out to parents and to students. What will that look like? So next week, we are planning to do a neighborhood incident response support team, which we also call NURST. And we only do this type of community engagement when there's a serious incident as this has happened in a neighborhood especially when it involves small children. So what it would look like that our officers from a youth unit as well as community response unit uh, will be in the area and uh, somebody, uh, another representative from IHIT may be joining us uh, to basically address the concerns of the residents if they have any uh, questions, concerns, and also to uh, show our support that we are there for our community. We understand this is a serious incident that has happened and we'll have victim services on standby if anybody needs extra support. All right. Do you know how old the student is or what grade the student's in, the student that found the firearm, the small handgun? I believe it was uh, a grade two student that had uh, located the firearm. And do you know if the student immediately brought it to the attention of adults? Or I mean, I, I could just imagine somebody that age, you might not know the severity of what you've discovered. You might be, they might play with it or, or, find, or be kind of, you know, not take it right to an adult. Do you know how that played out? I don't know the exact details of what exactly happened, uh, but the more important thing I think here is that no one was hurt. It could have played out in many serious ways that we don't want to imagine as parents. Um, we will be, you know, today we have youth officers in school with victim services. We'll be talking to the students as well, just uh, making sure that they know when they do see something, whether it's similar to this or any other object, that they don't approach it, they don't touch it, notify their school staff immediately. Okay. Do you know if the student, though, in this case, touched it or picked it up before alerting adults? I, I don't have um, any knowledge on that, uh, whether the um, student was by themselves or with another adult in the school and whether they actually touched it or picked it up. All right. What does this say, though, uh, about whoever it was that left the gun there? Uh, no, I mean, they must have known they left this at a school ground. What does it say about uh, people that are involved in these crimes? Uh, you know, when I look at the shooting that occurred on Tuesday night, these people have no regard for public safety whatsoever. And this is not just with this incident. We've seen that in the past, that people who are involved in the violence that's been happening in our community, they have no regard for our safety. And this, this is one of the examples that they didn't care that this firearm ended up in a school where a kid had seen it or may have picked it up. Anything could have happened, but we're thankful that it didn't happen, that this, you know, resolved that some somebody saw it and we got it and we, you know, took care of it. But this shows...
shows the disregard of the people who are involved in this violence that they do not care. All right. Well, Constable Sangha, thanks so much for joining us and talking about this and the response that's going to be seen in the community as well. Appreciate your time this afternoon. Thank you, Jeff. Well, we're spending a little bit of time talking about cocktails. If you heard my conversation with Richard Zussman, we ended it by talking about what he had planned for Super Bowl. And I'm still curious about that one drink he talked about. It was the Cincinnati something. I forget exactly what it was. It was basically just beer mixed with soda water. We're going to talk about some cocktails and drinks that are a little more elaborate than that with Valentine's Day just around the corner as well. And the person to talk to is Colin McDougall, cocktail expert with Corby Spirit and Wine. Colin, thanks so much for being back on the show with us. Oh, thanks for having me, yeah. It is the time of year where people might be looking to make that signature cocktail, be it for Valentine's Day or just a a date or what have you, maybe Super Bowl. Uh, You've put out a list of some ideas and ways to kind of take it up a notch. So what what are your favorite ingredients or favorite things to work with when we're talking about making those drinks? Yeah, I think, you know, when it comes to any of the holidays, going cliche always is like my, my, my way to go. You know, with like with Valentine's Day, you know, the red color is like an, an obvious one. But, um, you know, for me, like there's a couple of ways to make something authentic without just dumping some grenadine in there, you know, or uh, um, and going, going too hokey with it. So, yeah, I've got a few options here. Like um, I, I thought like it would be cool to show, you know, a brunch and an evening cocktail. Um, to kind of satisfy both sides of the of like of the day, so maybe you're not much of a drinker, but you want to do something a little festive in the morning. Um, so, so for uh, do you have a frother at home, like a milk frother? I think so. <laughs> Obviously, I haven't used it very much lately, but I do think I have I one somewhere. <laughs> they come with like you get them with curing. They used to be standalone things, and basically, what you do is you pour some milk into this little frother thing, and and they have like usually between a six and eight ounce volume, right? So you pour the milk in, you press the button, and it froths up your milk for you. And I um, so I thought that was a fun way to like introduce like a, a brunch cocktail. So with something like that, like you know, for me at home, I'm okay with dairy, but oat milk works great. I, I do deter against. Uh, like almond milk and some of the other ones because they just won't froth. You'll heat up. But um, the flavor for that that I thought would be kind of fun to do is add, you know, an ounce of Kahlua to give you that really nice coffee flavor in with it. Uh, and then I made like a cinnamon heart syrup. Ooh. which is Cinnamon hearts just right and remind me of like grade school, you know. Mm. So it literally was just uh, adding like, you know, an ounce, of sh- um, a cup of sugar, a cup of, uh, of water and bringing that to boil with like a handful of, of cinnamon hearts. Uh, you get that real spicy and it just reminds me of... Uh, of yeah, like of like being a kid and um, you know enjoying, yeah, enjoying, like uh, yeah, little treats. Yeah. I was just trying to think of the last time I had cinnamon hearts. I don't think I, I was definitely an adult, but it was it was some time yeah. ago. And that's a that's a, that seems like a more adult way to work them into your diet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you might have them kicking around if you've got kids too, right? And you're like, hey, I'm going to put these to good use for me tonight uh, or this afternoon. So the other thing too, uh, like that syrup, you can you get this nice color out of it, obviously from the shell of the candy. And and yeah, as you recall, when you revisit them, you're like, whoa, these are spicier than I remember. <laughs> yeah, <they laughs> like I could, I could eat like a handful. <laughs> so. So, uh, yeah, I, I was going to say at night, at, at night, you know, you can take that. You've made, you've made that syrup. You put some hard work in already. So you can use that for like an old-fashioned later. Um, you can get that nice spicy. So, you know, with Jameson, like an old-fashioned is just bitters, simple syrup, and uh, and um, the the, uh, the whiskey. So, you know, fun way to, to kind of get a twofer out of it, like a, a lighter 
frothy one and then uh, and then a boozier one at night. Interesting. And you meant you mentioned this. So do you have a ratio for what you do with the the cinnamon hearts, how many you would use? Like you said, if you haven't had them for a while, they probably pack more of a punch <laughs> than you remember. How do you do it? So you're not having a like a super spicy syrup. Yeah. And so I think the benefit of that is the sugar really tames it down. So for me, my kind of just go to is one cup of sugar, one cup of water, and then a handful. So like you're talking about, you know, 15 to 20 of them, depending on uh, your hand. <laughs> but, uh, but that and, and the spice, like, like we were talking with there, that doesn't trans- translate to like ginger spice or like, you know, it's, it's, it's toned down with the sugar. So it's definitely manageable. And, and when you're using it in small amounts, like with that frother, I was saying an ounce um, with an old fashioned, you'd probably want to use more like a quarter ounce or a half ounce, depending on how you uh how sweet you like things um that that's the go for it for sure all right and you mentioned i think you mentioned almond milk for people that maybe don't want dairy in their drinks if they're doing again going back to the the drinks where you're using the frother can you use other types like oat or or almond or other types of milk yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, what I've noticed with the frother, and I've tried this at home, is, is almond milk. And I, I have almond milk at home. I love it. But in a frother, it doesn't froth. It doesn't behave that way. So oat milk, like you said, tends to give you the froth that you're looking for. Um, and that's the one that I've noticed, um, you know, coconut milk, like the same thing. I don't really get the froth that I'm liking, where if you want to have that similarity to dairy, it's there. Um, and one thing I do for anybody that's listening in, I'm actually going to post both of these drinks that I'm talking about um, at Corby dot colon on Instagram. So at uh, C-O-R-B-Y dot C-O-L-I-N. And, and then, so if you're like, Hey, that sounds cool. I want to give it a try. I'm going to put both of those up there today and tomorrow. So you can give them a shot. All right. Uh, you're talking the, the hotter drink kind of with the frothed milk and then the old fashioned. Uh, do you find that people kind of fall into that category when you're talking about a fancier beverage that some people prefer, especially at this time of year, maybe the hot drink as opposed to the cold drink? Yeah, I think it's fun to switch it up. And, and you know, honestly, I don't know if, if you're like me, you may go home and be like, oh, my God, I do have a frother. That's just sitting in the back of the cupboard forever and be like, there you go. There's a reason to pull it out and give it a shot, you know. Um, so I think the occasion is fun. Um, you know, that first one's low ABV. So um, either way, you know, like uh, the hot drinks, I think, are nice. And, and we, we, ha- we're, we have a barrage of like, you know, the hot toddies, like a, a given. You could, you could always just do like, you know, hot water, squeeze a lemon, your, your cinnamon syrup and a nice Irish whiskey for a nice hot toddy. But um, I I think it's just a different occasion and kind of fun and and you're right like the old fashioned is just trending right now so it's it's such a, a popular drink um and this is just offering a new syrup to give you a different uh look at like you know the classic right if you don't have a frother can you kind of macgyver it can you warm up the milk on the stove and throw it in the blender yeah, you know, 100%. If you have, like, <laughs> theoretically, if you just did this stovetop, you could totally put all those things in together, stovetop, um, you know, on a low simmer, get it heat- heated to the temperature where, you know, it's, um, you can still drink it. Uh, and then, uh, you know, I, on my blender at home, I have the whisk version. And you could even whisk this up if you really wanted to dedicate some time. And, and then your partner um, who's, who's on the receiving end of this drink is really going to appreciate all that elbow grease, right? Right. That's, that's dedication, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> You're also making the assumption that we're sharing these drinks with somebody. Exactly. Or you're putting it in for yourself, right? <laughs> yes, <laughs> Good point. Ex- exactly. Um, the Cosmopolitan <laughs> seems like the classic pink drink from, is it cranberry juice, I guess. But there are other ways I would imagine that you can also make that look rather festive. 
Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the Cosmo is one of those drinks. I mean, Absolute Citron is like the standard um, vodka. Like when, when it was created, that was the one that was made for it. Um, so you got the vodka base. And, and like you said, cranberry is what gives it the color, gives it the length because you have uh, an orange liqueur in there and some fresh citrus. Uh, lime is the preferred one there. But um, as what I've noticed in grocery stores, there's a whole bunch of fun juices that are there. And, and pomegranate um, with palm, you've seen it look, almost looks like a snowman on the shelf, mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the little bottle. Uh, th- that stuff works great. And, and it's, it's a little more tart. So you may find yourself wanting to use maybe a little bit more of the orange liqueur to balance that out. Um, but if you're, if you're at f- having fun at home, if you're by yourself, you know, and you want to make a couple <laughs> of these and perfect it, I think that's the way to do it, right? And also with the antioxidants in the pomegranate juice, it's, it's almost like you've made yourself a smoothie and it's a health drink now. I, you know, I think that's justification to skip the gym the next day if you're doing that, right? <laughs> yes, maybe, maybe not that far. <laughs> yeah, um, and too the, far, but yeah. The pink, a pink twist on the gin and tonic, is that the kind of the same idea as far as what's making that pink? Yeah, so I mean, uh, Beef Eater Pink is is pretty large. I mean, all across Canada, North America, we have it now. And Beef Eater is like the kind of the standard London dry gin. And they released this uh, really awesome pink, which has uh, like a vanilla and strawberry flavor to it. So the Beef Eater Pink Gin is just really easy drinking, even just on its own. But um, we were suggesting like, you know, classic drinks, a gin and tonic. So get yourself, um, you know, uh, the Beef Eater Pour, like, you know, ounce and a half of gin, top it up with, I'd say up to five ounces of tonic, because any more you're really drowning with the gin, you won't taste it. It'll just taste like boozy tonic. Maybe that's what you're going for. Um, But, uh, and then, you know, and the strawberries in there to add to the flavor that's already there. But, you know, all the work's already done in that that gin. So it's just such a a no-brainer. Do you get people asking as well, because not everybody will be drinking alcoholic beverages, but when you have all of these ingredients and you're making these for those who are, is it pretty easy to then find ways to to not put the alcohol in, to use all of those other ingredients and then offer up a non-alcoholic choice as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, setting yourself up for success, like if you are, like we were talking about earlier with that syrup, which again, I'm going to post to my uh, Instagram just how to make that because it's really straightforward, but you might get daunted and be like, oh, how much did he say? So I'll have it up there. But you know, that, that frother one that we talked about, I had to Kahlua in there, but essentially if you just do the milk with the cinnamon syrup, you're just doing um, like almost like a, a frothy kind of non-alcoholic um, version uh, that way. Um, and, and, you know, and the same thing when you're looking at the ingredients, like in a Cosmo, if you want to, uh, try to do without the vodka and, you know, with the pomegranate, get, get, uh, creative with the citrus and then find a way to replace, you know, the orange. Um, you can definitely do, do versions like that. I, I recommend too having soda water or something where if, if you're doing drinks, alcoholic and non-alcoholic, the, the, sh- the sugar and, and this, and this, um, <clears throat> And the citrus, and then in that case, the pomegranate there, um, it doesn't make a lot of volume, right? So when you, when you don't have the booze in there, sometimes you're like, wah, wah, like there's only a couple ounces here. So adding some ice and then some soda to top it up, then you've got volume, and then all of a sudden you've got a drink there. All right, that's good advice, definitely. Uh, one other question, um, simple syrup. Do you have a trick about that or ratios when it comes to making a simple syrup? Oh, boy, we could do a whole session on this. <laughs> But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I do. I mean, the standard simple syrup that people usually make is just white sugar uh, to water. And the best way to do it is, is to do it on the stovetop. It really, it, it takes no time at all. You just turn the uh, stove on to low simmer and, and it's one to one is the standard ratio. 
At home, I'll do two to one. So I'll do two, two parts sugar to one part water or like two cups of sugar to one cup of water. And I'll even add two ounces of vodka to that so that the staying power is long. Sugar is a preservative and, and the more sugar that's in there, um, the more it's going to preserve. And then when you add the vodka, that preserves it even further. And then you can get a little bit more length of that simple syrup in your, uh, in your, in, uh, your fridge where you store it to keep, have it keep longer. But um, as, as you know, you, you're probably like, I shouldn't ask him that question. Just when is he going to stop <laughs> no, no, that's talking okay. here? <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, the, so, but really the stock standard, if you, the first time you've ever made simple syrup, I recommend doing a stovetop for the reason that all the grains definitely get, you know, melted and you don't have a bunch of like grains of sugar in there. Because if you just take hot water and sugar and add them, it takes a lot of effort to try to get everything to fully dissolve. So it's completely liquid and you don't have those sugar grains in there. All right. That is good advice. Uh, Colin, I'm glad that you're going to be putting some of those recipes on your Instagram as well. We will leave it there for today, but thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me.